justliberty.org It's good for you and it's good for me Justliberty.org Justliberty.org Hi, this is Scott Henson, Policy Director at Just Liberty and creator of the blog Grits for Breakfast. I sat down with ProPublica's Pam Koloff to talk about her recent long-form report on the cover of New York Times Magazine. The story described a 30-year-old Texas murder conviction based on dubious conclusions about blood spatter evidence that are still used in courtrooms today. Here's how she described the case. This is a story, uh, it's actually a Texas story, about a man named Joe Bryan, who is a beloved high school principal in Clifton, Texas, which is about a half hour west of Waco. And in 1985, uh, Joe's wife, Mickey, who was uh, also a beloved local school teacher, was murdered in their home in her bed. And Joe had been at a principal's convention in Austin in the days leading up to and around this crime. And he's always contended he was in his hotel room asleep in bed uh, when this happened, which of course is an alibi that's hard to prove because no one was with him. Um, but there was no uh, th- there was no evidence linking him to the crime. There was no evidence even placing him in Clifton, Texas that night. Everyone saw him uh, in Austin. But he became, and it was initially believed to have been a break-in. All the indications in the house were that it was a break-in. He came under scrutiny when his brother-in-law, the victim's brother, uh, who had borrowed his car for the week, the car had been out of Joe's possession for for a number of days. The brother-in-law found uh, a flashlight in the trunk, or so he told the Texas Rangers, and it was uh, speckled with what appeared to be blood. And so began this uh, effort to connect the flashlight to the crime scene and therefore to Joe. And that's where bloodstain pattern analysis came in. Wow. On a flashlight. On a, on a flashlight that wasn't found at the crime scene that we still are not sure if it's blood that's on it. That's one of the other fun facts of the story. <laughs> um, but I had, I had been looking for a case for a while to write about that was about bloodstain pattern analysis and, uh, which I can explain in a second, but this particular case just had a lot of narrative elements as well that I was interested in. Sure. The high school teachers. And- yeah. I mean, it was, this was a guy who, you know, had done no wrong according to people in the town, but by the end of the first trial, people, you know, he had, he had 36 character witnesses at his first trial, which I had never heard of happening in any trial ever before. But when the jury handed down a a guilty verdict, as many people told me, they believed in law enforcement, they believed in the criminal justice system. And uh, if that's what a jury found, then he was guilty. Wow. So how did you get started on blood spatter? You said you'd been looking for a case to sort of be the central focus on that topic. What made you interested in this topic in the first place? Because that's a pretty obscure place for a journalist to say, hey, this is this is going to be my area. I'm going to spend the next however many years of my life honing in on this topic. That, that, that's me. That's the kind of, kind of stuff I like. I know. Um, what was really through uh, Michael Hall. I know him as Mike. Mike Hall's writing at Texas Monthly about uh, junk forensic science and the Cameron Todd Willingham case that had uh, raised my consciousness, shall we say, about the 
problems with forensic science. And so broadly, I had been wanting to write about forensic science and the problems with it uh, Michael, in the courtroom. Just, Michael, just to interject, had this amazing story on bite marks that yes. has been incredibly influential and, and, like you say, has been one of the journalists who's just hitting it out of the park on these forensic topics. Every time. If you have not read all of Mike's stories, go to the Texas Monthly Archives and read them. Um, so I... When I was still working for Texas Monthly, I went and uh, covered a trial that I thought I was going to write about, and it's a very long story why I did not, that I will not go into. But I went and covered a trial in East Texas, a murder trial, in which uh, a man was accused of murdering his wife and stepson. Uh, and the the issue in the case was had this man murdered his wife and stepson or had the stepson murdered his mom and then killed himself. And there was uh, what from photos looked to be a pretty classic uh, suicide scene of this teenager uh, with long gun between his legs and a single blast to his mouth. And um, it looked pretty straightforward to me. And so I, w I was interested in this case. So I went to cover it. And Tom Bevel, who's sort of the father of modern bloodstain pattern analysis, testified for the prosecution. And he said that by looking at the bloodstain patterns in the son's room where this shooting took place, that he could tell that this was a double homicide, that there was no suicide possible. And he gave his reasons for that. And then the defense presented their side of the case and they had a, a former student of Tom Bevel's, who is a crime scene investigator out in, in Smith and Wood County, not a bastion of liberalism, right. who, who got up there and said, this was, this was a murder-suicide. And the bloodstain patterns are telling me that, it's a, that that's what it is. So I'm sitting there watching all this and uh, was just fascinated. I just thought, how can two men with the same exact training literally they're going by the same literal book one train to the other one train the other look at the same exact crime scene and come to two diametrically opposite conclusions and you know in watching the jury tom bevel who testified for the prosecution he's a fantastic witness he's very polished and very persuasive and it you know this is not a novel concept but i was struck by the fact that really the witness who was the most polished won the day not science right right well and uh this thing where it's possible to have two supposed scientists look at something and come to the opposite conclusion that's a that's a weird thing about forensic science and we're going to talk about that a little more in a moment well but i'm going to interrupt both of these guys true. were law enforcement they weren't scientists and i, I thought right. that's what was so interesting was the word science kept science 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 the jury heard that over and over and over again and these are cops. There's no so scientist here. No, no scientist present. That's, right. a, that's exactly right. Well, and a lot of these uh, comparison-based forensics, really, that, that is the case. You know, it's not scientists looking at fingerprints or ballistics. It's just a cop who went through a bunch of training and then practiced. Right. Well, and, and as Tom Bevel explained in his uh, testimony in that East Texas case, he said, you know, before I, I do this, I read all the police reports. I get as much information as I can. I remember he faced the jurors when he told them this. And I could see that this 
resonated well with jurors. Like, oh, he really does his homework. You know, he really researches things before he, you know, this isn't just some quick thing. And of course, I'm sitting there thinking, that's the opposite. Wow, if you had a DNA analyst get up there and say, you know, before I did my analysis, I got up and I read right. all the police reports, people would be horrified. But somehow for this type of forensic science, that was considered at least in my read of jurors' reactions, which could be wrong, though they did convict the man, uh, positive. For her report, Pam attended a 40-hour training for blood spatter experts in which she was given the same training and the same certificate proving it as so-called police experts who testify in cases. Let's hear her describe it. I have uh, 40 hours of training in bloodstain pattern analysis from a class that was taught by Bevel Gardner and Associates, Tom Bevel's company. And the expert witness in Joe Bryan's case had a 40-hour class with Tom Bevel. So my intent was, I'm going to get as much training as this expert witness had, and then I'm going to look at the evidence. Wow. And so tell us about this training. You went to Oklahoma for this. Is that right? Yeah. So it's at some point in my reporting on this case, I just had one of those light bulb moments that usually happens while sitting in Austin traffic, which takes up a lot of my day, which was the only way I'm going to really understand this is if I just go do it. And I wonder if I could get in one of the classes. And at the time, the Texas Forensic Science Commission, in fact, let me back up. The way I found Joe's case, I was looking for a bloodstain pattern analysis case. And the commission took up two cases in the past 18 months, I think for the first time within the discipline. And so I looked at both of them. Either one would have been a fascinating deep dive, but I picked Joe's case. But anyway, the commission was looking at the training of people who were testifying in Texas courtrooms. So there was a larger purpose also to going and doing this class. But I was interested, Bevel Gardner and Associates is one of, if not the sort of go-to private firms that teaches these classes. And Tom Bevel literally wrote the book on bloodstain pattern analysis that is quoted uh, by expert witnesses on the stand all the time. So I saw that they had an upcoming class in Yukon, Oklahoma, and I just liked the sound of that also. So <laughs> I, I wrote to them and asked if, as a journalist, if I could take it. And I, you know, identified myself. I used my ProPublica email address and explained that I wrote about uh, criminal justice and wanted to understand this better. And they very graciously allowed me to take the class. Um, you know, I had been my experience. I, I, I've gone into those sort of trainings as a blogger. Yes. And they've let me do it. They're like, well, do you have $120? Yes. yes. <laughs> this was close to seven. This was uh, $655. Okay. So that. Yeah, but you got a certificate. But I, <laughs> I did, though I, I will I didn't get to write about this, but the, the money side of this surprised me. So, I was in a room full of guys who have taken a week away from their jobs where they're doing important stuff. These are crime scene investigators. They have, they're paying for a hotel room, a rental car, $655 to take the class, a per diem. Uh, that's all taxpayer money. And I found that to be very interesting. I didn't get to go into all that. But I was with about 20 folks in this class, almost entirely police officers. There were a couple forensic analysts from Oregon. There are people from all over in this class, which I thought was fascinating also. And we learned how to analyze and interpret bloodstains. So did you find it convincing? You you, you had this incident where you, you watched 
trained people come to opposite conclusions. Did you now understand why each of them had come to those conclusions? And yes, is it, is, are there areas where there's just an inherent subjectivity here or what, what's going on? So there, there's so much and uh, I'll try to boil it down to the most important things, but everything from taking measurements, and this is why it was helpful to do it in a hands-on classroom. But when you're taking measurements with calipers there are tremendous variability in in the measurements you're doing yeah. that then have tremendous consequences when you're trying to reverse engineer a crime scene. So there were things just from the basic mechanics of how do you do this that were troubling to me to, I mean, the, the ultimate thing that I found troubling was with calipers with, with ca no, digital calipers. Digital, they they okay. were, they were digital, okay. but I mean, really you, even that it's, it's very interesting, very challenging the easy math errors that it's easy to make. We, we were told up front my first day that a 40-hour class would not make us experts. It would give us, I don't have the phrase exactly right, but we would know just enough to be dangerous, I believe was how our instructor put it. Uh, he said that several times during the week. So, And that really proved to be true because when you are comparing, when you're trying to identify a pattern, any kind of pattern, but in this case, a bloodstain pattern, you are, just to give an example, there are many cases in which people have been convicted because there is, quote, a high velocity bloodstain pattern on their t-shirt. The term high velocity has gone out of fashion, but generally speaking, that's what it's called. Because it's a bunch of bunk? And, and that's that's a whole long other story. And what has been shown is actually what can look like that can be many other things, including someone who's dying aspirating blood. Mm. So the, the, these very tiny little droplets of blood aren't always caused by a person firing a gun over them. It can be them finding the body of the person who has just shot themselves or has been shot and cradling that person. I, I can't tell you how many cases I've looked at with this scenario with a spouse. Wow. Um, there's a, a case, Warren Horneck is a, a man, former uh, uh, Fort Worth police officer who is convicted on this, uh, on this evidence who remains in prison. But anyway, when I saw how you could, how, how a bloodstain pattern that's caused by a gunshot can look nearly identical or identical to a bloodstain pattern that's caused by someone who's dying and aspirating blood, you can start to see the danger of this stuff. Right, right. Well, it, it's a lens you're looking at it through. If you're looking for the gunshot, then that's what you're going to find. And, right. and there's a lot of these that are that way where, because this, some of these things really aren't scientific. They are really are just cops, things cops started to do to accuse people. Nobody's really looked at the science. So I think about a series of, uh, of cases we had where medical examiners in Texas were accusing people of child molestation based on, oh, you're the, the, the girl's hymen was sure. looked in, in a certain way. Well, it turned out, and I, it may have been Jordan Smith um, who wrote that story. I know Jordan wrote about this. Um, yes. uh, who, who broke that, where it turned out the guy later took trainings and realized, oh, wait, that's just what they look like. Right. Oops. 
And oh, sorry. How many people are sitting in prison now? Yes, exactly. (laughs) Based on this and arson was the same way. Some of the things that they were, were basing their arson findings on were almost anti-scientific. The moment they applied science to those theories, they just went up in smoke, so to speak. So that was right. But, but, but a jury, a jury hears the word science. They might hear the word experiments because some of these people do, you know, reenactments and things like that. And I think especially in a case where there are a lot of grays and so many of the cases I've looked at involving bloodstain pattern analysis are circumstantial cases. I think this gives jurors the assurance that they are hearing a scientific opinion and they can render a verdict based on that. Right. And that actually is very common in all the forensics. When I was at the Innocence Project of Texas, we'd see, of course, forensic cases from many, many different disciplines. And one thing people don't always realize about forensics is it's always something that happens after the fact. They, they've, they've figured out who they think has done it. Exactly. And they've accused them. And nobody is going to spend the money on lab work unless somebody's already been arrested. Right. And so, so the forensic work is something that may come back to corroborate a theory months later but it's very seldom sort of what causes someone. There's, there's usually another array of, right. of, of accusatory facts. Well, when those start to fall aside, if maybe your jailhouse snitches don't work out or if someone, some witness turned out to be an, you know, an angry ex-spouse or had ulterior motives or, or whatever it is, then the forensics get sort of hung out there to dry. And that's that's how I, I, th- I think of a lot of these uh, comparative forensics. And Well, just as an example, I mean, I do think there, there's one value I saw to bloodstain pattern analysis in the cases I looked at, and that is at the crime scene itself when you are trying to figure out investigative leads. So I'll just give you an example. There's something they they taught us about. It can be several different things, but it's called a drip trail. Mm -hmm. And so that can indicate, not necessarily, but it can indicate that uh, someone left the scene. If you see a drip trail go out the front door, that someone left the scene who was injured. Okay, well, that might be helpful in your investigation. I totally get that. But that is really different than a police officer at, say, Joe Bryan's trial getting up there and saying, this flashlight that wasn't found at the crime scene were, and the circumstances in which it was found are very strange. You know, don't pay any attention to that because this pattern on this lens of this flashlight that's two inches wide, so how much of a pattern do you really have, can only have been produced by a, a close range shooting. And therefore, we know essentially that this was at the scene of the crime. Right. That, that's and and the, theory, the theory, by the way, because I always love this theory, the theory was that the killer of Mickey Bryan was holding the gun in one hand and the flashlight in the other. So I want you to try to imagine that very strange. That's just a, a weird a way. Weird it's a weird way to, to kill do. somebody. Yes, it so. really is. I will say, though, even the drip trail part, I'm not sure anyone needs to go to some special class to figure of that course. out. I mean, if you if you if you shoot a deer and you don't get a kill shot on the first one, right? It's the same thing you do to go find it. I'm not sure that this is like some exactly big secret law enforcement cop science that we all have to bow down to. It, it's if there's a lot of blood in one part of the room, that's probably where the person bled out. That, things things that are pretty. 
<laughs> That's right. And anything beyond those very basic things, it sounds like it's a little dubious. I, I thought everything we looked at was highly open to interpretation. And, and I was, I was wow. amazed. And, you know, I, I, several times I asked our instructor, you know, I, I wasn't there to, I truly wasn't there as a gotcha. If, if I could prompt, like I, I said to him, I think two or three different times, raised my hand. Can we talk about the limitations? Like when can we not classify this pattern or just something to try to limit what we were talking about. And I didn't feel that that was adequately ag addressed. And in fact, in our class, we were coached on how to testify. So even though at the same time, we were told that we were going to walk out and not be experts, and then we needed much more training before we could call ourselves experts, we were also told how to deflect questions from attorneys on the stand, mm -hmm. uh, from opposing attorneys on the stand. I'm so glad you mentioned that because actually, in my experience, what you described about not describing the limits of a technique in all of these comparative um, situations is really the big problem with what's going on. It's not that you shouldn't be able to say, oh, well, the blood did this and so I, we made this interpretation. But tell us it's an interpretation. Don't tell us it's science. Right. Don't tell us that it's, you know, you sprinkled magic science dust over it and it came out this way. You know, even in um, DNA mixture analyses, it's, it's the exact, you know, same types of, of issues there. There's I have to interject that in my effort to understand DNA mixtures, which... It's also a component of this case. I read a lot of your writing on that, oh, which was I very, <laughs> very clear. It's a very confusing subject for a non-science person such as myself. It's an amazingly confusing subject. And actually, since we mentioned the Forensic Science Commission, their audit of the Austin Police Department is probably, for anyone listening, the clearest explication of what the problems with DNA mixture evidence are. You're welcome to read the blog, too, but that's probably the go-to spot. Um, the commission's doing amazing, amazing work. They are. And, and, and let's turn and talk a little bit about the commission, about forensics in general. Um, we're here almost 10 years out from when the National Academy of Sciences um, had their big report. It was in 2009, Strengthening Forensic Science, A Path Forward. And they're the first ones that identified the problems with all of these comparative forensic methods. And uh, I remember I was so excited about this when that came out that I turned around. It was really even before they, they came out because we knew it was coming, right? It was years in the making. And I was ready and was pushing our junk science writ in Texas. And I'm like, look, we're going to be challenging all these forensic sciences. We have to have our laws in place so we can do this. And, you know, we passed our junk science writ and then crickets. Right. And then every once in a while... On death penalty cases, somebody has enough lawyers where something gets up there, but then more crickets. And then, you know, an innocence case may bring up this narrow thing, and then that person gets out, but nobody else does, and then crickets. And then you come out with 22,000 words, and maybe blood spatter goes, you know, down in some states, but not others, and then crickets. I, th I would and say crickets. It's I wouldn't say there's much that's much movement that's happened. I, I think... It's really shocking. I spent a lot of time when I was working on this story looking at, well, what's happened since 2009? What, I must be missing something. And there was, there was so little, there was so little that had happened. 
And it was really shocking to realize, you know, here we are coming up on the decade anniversary of this. And, you know, Jeff Sessions disbanded the National Commission that was looking into all of this. And so we have the Texas Forensic Science Commission, God bless them, but not every state has that. Most states don't. Right. Peter Newfield, um, in an interview that we did, I guess, in December, um, said that they're the very best in the country and that the other forensic science commissions that exist, especially in New York, where he'd been involved, really just pale in comparison and are sort of, you know, industry driven and, and not really addressing these emerging issues. No, I, I think I think they're the model. And we actually there's a lot to be proud of here between the commission, uh, the, the new crime lab in Houston, which does blind testing, which also does not do bloodstain pattern analysis, by the way. Hmm. Um, I, that's part of a, a story that I'm working on that's coming up. But there's just nothing that's happened or so little that's happened. And I, I think what's also shocking, you know, a lot of people said to me, well, why are you, why are you looking at such an old case? Like, is this stuff still going on? And I said, not only is um, bloodstain pattern analysis is really meant to be a stand-in for so many of these different types of pattern identification yeah. disciplines, but not only is it still all these things still being widely used in our criminal justice system, but you have a lot of people sitting in prison on convictions that were touched in some way by this. Now, there are plenty of cases in the case of bloodstain pattern analysis where that was not the pivotal ingredient. But, and a lot of people said that to me and I said, well, how can you separate out, you know, you have a prosecution witness who seems so credible and is tying all the threads of this circumstantial case together. Sure. Maybe that wasn't the tipping point, but it was part of the jury's consideration. Well, that's part of what I was describing earlier about how forensics are almost always an add on. It's really never, with the exception of DNA evidence and occasionally fingerprint, it's rarely the person that's, that causes the initial accusation. It's the embroidery when they're putting the case together. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And so especially for these people who've read every jot and tittle in the case and they're so proud that they've read the whole case file, well, that's the worst thing you could do to inject cognitive bias into your analysis. And even fingerprint examiners in some cases do that. Well, and you know, inexplicably, what I think is hard for prosecutors, I mean, they're under a lot of pressure and there's an expectation from jurors who watch these TV shows that there's going to be forensic science that shows them the answer. And so, uh, it's sort of a vicious cycle, you know, where, where jurors come in expecting this prosecutors and police officers know they come in expecting it right? and they have to present a case that's going to satisfy that. Right. It's a it's a fascinating dynamic and it's hard to know how to break through that juror expectation. You're right. It's probably mostly set by television. But this thing where two analysts can look at the same evidence and come up with different results is really something that even happens you know, in the things that people think of as the gold standard, like fingerprints here in Texas for the longest time. At DPS, they had, uh, when a fingerprint examiner made a match, they required a second person to look at it to confirm. If the second person came up with a different result, then uh, it went to the supervisor and the supervisor made the call. Well, for years and years, when the supervisor made that call, they weren't informing defense counsel or the courts that one of the analysts had ever disagreed. And after I actually reported it on the blog and, and Judge Hervey 
kind of got upset about it at their criminal justice integrity unit. And they started, you know, reporting what is really obviously Brady information. Hey, one of our analysts said it wasn't the guy. Right. Um, but it had not really occurred to them. It was just, well, we have a process for dealing with that. The supervisor looks at it and they decide, oh, but wait, uh, Right. What does it mean that two of your guys can disagree? It means it's not a science. It means it's somebody's opinion. Well, and as long as you have crime labs under the auspices of law enforcement, there are going to be issues like that. And so, again, going back to the Houston Crime Lab, I'm not calling it the correct. It's the Houston Forensic Science Center, I believe, uh, which is totally independent of HPD. You see different work coming out of there. Um, and, you know, I, I found... I didn't find this was widely written about, but in the North Carolina crime lab, they, for years with bloodstain pattern analysis, if their analysts were coming up with something that didn't confirm the prosecution's case, it was either not disclosed or sometimes thrown away. Wow. So they, they were, um, they saw their jobs as working for only the, the DA's office and whatever particular case it was. You had mentioned to me that you're actually are a, podcast fan and yes listen to, so i was just going to ask you uh tell our listeners what should they be listening to what should they be paying attention to what has gripped you and fascinated you in the criminal justice podcast realm in the past there, three months there's so many good things out there well aside from what you're doing and thank you for what you're doing there's three criminal justice podcasts that i really i don't want to say enjoyed they're all very disturbing but you know what i mean one which i'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard of is in the dark particularly season two which is about a case of a black man in mississippi who's on death row who's been tried six times for the same crime and uh what the reporters find out who work on this is just like i, I didn't think i could be shocked anymore by how bad a case could be but they go through and systematically show you every element of the case that's wrong from the snitch testimony to the bad forensics and so on and so forth. And it's devastating. The second one I've been really captivated by, um, it has a, a, a bit of a dark name, but stick with me. It's called Missing and Murdered. And the second season is the one that I maybe why I hadn't latched onto that one. <laughs> the, the second, the, it's actually the uh, sort of the brainiest of all the ones I've listened to, despite the uh, that's not quite the right word because in the dark is has such integrity. But it's called Missing and Mur Murdered, but it's the second season, Finding Cleo, that I'd highly recommend listening to. This is a podcast done out of Canada that is about Indigenous women who are subject to a crime rate that is astronomically higher than the rest of the population, sexual assault and murder. And in Finding Cleo, the reporter, Connie Walker, goes about trying to find this woman who, as a girl, was separated from her family and, and what happened to her. They have heard rumors that, that she was killed. And in, <clears throat> in the course of actually solving this mystery um, tells you a lot about how the criminal justice system completely fails the indigenous population in Canada. And you can extrapolate a lot from that here. Uh, and then lastly is a podcast that WNYC is doing called after effect um, that breaks down a uh, police shooting. Oh, and yes. it, it goes through it very methodically um, in, in a way that is just fascinating. And I haven't finished it, but I, so far have just thought it was very, very smart. 
Actually, WNYC has a Supreme Court podcast, too, that's excellent. And I want to plug, I'm blanking on the name, WNYC also has an incredible um, juvenile criminal justice podcast Mm. about juveniles being locked up. And I'm so sorry, I can't remember the name off the top of my head. I'll see if I can find it and put a link in the the post. All right. And uh, last but definitely not least, I wanted to talk to you about a question that you are truly uniquely qualified to discuss and that is the, the state of journalism and specifically journalism on criminal justice topics in America um, just as a, a setup you know when I when I left the University of Texas it turned out that that was the high point for journalism employment in America yes who knew and from that moment and I, I guess I knew because the Dallas Times Herald went under and then I couldn't get a job and so i went into politics so i i I actually could have told you back then (laughs) um newspaper industry was dying long before the internet got there people don't understand that but that was really true all our houston post went under soon thereafter and young people like me couldn't get journalism jobs for the 90s really but today we've had this amazing resurgence of journalism in many ways but it's no longer local journalism crime journal crime journalism crime coverage criminal justice coverage crime journalism is transforming into criminal justice coverage and instead of you know the Dallas Morning News reporting on who got robbed who got raped who got murdered um crime coverage is frequently more frequently being done by nonprofits or by um, sort of secondary or tertiary outfits or citizen journalists, citizen journalists, the, the rise of the, the cell phone videos for the um, police shootings has sort of spurred all of that. And you were at Texas monthly for years. You've led one of the most blessed journalism lives. imaginable Because the, the amazing things that your editors have let you do over the years, you must be like this, Svengali within the <laughs> the budget room, you know, somehow convincing them to do this. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that, but I've been very lucky. I'm very, not, very lucky. Yeah, you and I have joked that we might take a forensic hypnosis training together, and if, yes. if we get to, I'm, I'm wondering if you haven't already mastered some of these techniques and used them <laughs> on your editors to get them to let you do all this. But, um, but at Texas Monthly, you got to do these amazing long form stories and at Pro Poop, and then you moved to a ProPublica New York Times partnership. Yes. They, Tell us about that. Very so, unusual. Uh, Jake Silverstein, who used to be my, my editor at Texas Monthly, the editor in chief, he went to the Times Magazine. Oh my goodness. I think four, maybe five years ago. Can't be that and long, but I guess it, it is. It has amazingly. And, um, we had, you know, we're talking over the years about how to work together again. And I had done some uh, freelance work for ProPublica and was just a huge fan of what they were doing. And so uh, we sort of hatched this plan about a, a partnership between the New York Times Magazine, where he's now the editor in chief, and ProPublica, and everybody liked that idea. So the idea is to bring both sort of narrative writing and really rigorous public interest reporting together uh, into the stories that I do. And they have to, every story has to have both of those components, which I like because to me, that's the way you get people interested is with the narrative, but it also has to be about something that matters. But I think what's interesting to see is how many nonprofits right now are doing 
incredible criminal justice work. Uh, ProPublica uh, um, has been doing some amazing work. Megan Rose did a series last year on Alfred Please that should be required mm-hmm. reading for everyone. Uh, Ken Armstrong came on board from the Marshall Project ProPublica last year, just came out with a story on Friday that I highly recommend reading about a very troubling case in Indiana. Uh, Ryan Gabrielson has been reporting on the Supreme Court. I could go on and on. Um, it's just an, it's like an incredible team of people. And then you also have uh, Jordan Smith and uh, Lillian Segura at The Intercept. Um, you have Maurice Chama and everybody at the Marshall Project. Um, locally, you have some amazing reporting going on at the Texas Tribune. What am I leaving out? There's so many. The, well, there are a bunch. The the Fair Punishment Project. Fair Punishment Project. Journalists and that's the most exciting sort of new thing I think going on right now is what they're doing. Yeah, and they, they have they, they have decided. the appeal is what they're calling it. That's right. Yeah. Well, and beyond that, they're you know they have partnerships that publish with other places too. Right. And they've just figured out, okay, no one was covering prosecutors. We're just going to hire somebody to go do it. But at the same time, I think that, that this is somehow changing the nature of criminal justice coverage. It certainly is no longer, you know, the folks in, for coming at it from those perspectives, from those nonprofits are looking at more systemic stuff. It, it's not just, Oh, somebody got shot. We know what the lead story is tonight. Right. It's, it's a very different, and um, uh, and on the flip side, you have vendors like the mugshots.com or folks who are just sort of bottom feeding, you know, uh, there's still a market for that. There's still a market a for sh- the shame factor of, oh, look who got embarrassed and look who got arrested. And Well, I think I think the biggest growing part of all of this are the unscripted series on Netflix. I mean, there's so many of them. And, uh, and podcasts. And while there, while I would say that I dislike about 95% of crime podcasts, I will say there are a lot of them out there that have taken old cases and dug into them in, in ways that have, you know, had interesting results. Uh, I don't like in both of those genres I just mentioned, there's a, a real, um, exploitative streak that is really unfortunate, I think, for victims' families that makes me deeply uncomfortable and I think tarnishes what a lot of us are doing sometimes. I I have that discomfort with a lot of true crime stuff, to be honest. Yes. Um, I I walk on edge of of how much I appreciate it sort of right along that that axis that that you're describing. And it is fascinating how the podcasts have, have allowed people to look at these old cases just like like you're doing now on that vein just um uh, uh to get us out of here i will add one more podcast to your list there um i've been listening to one lately that has been um, reevaluating all of the now nearly 50 year old cases from the original first scooby-doo season <laughs> and no. and demonstrating why all Did they of, use forensic science why all of those men were falsely accused Yes. <laughs> that would be a great podcast. <laughs> it is an excellent podcast. They actually go episode by episode. <laughs> is this a real podcast? It is a real podcast. What is it called? 
Afri- Scooby Doo. That is In- whole- the Scooby Doo Innocence Project, I believe it no. is. No. Um, <laughs> something along those lines. You'll find it searching Scooby Doo Innocence. It's, that it's is amazing. Ama- <laughs> <laughs> you know, we need to get those people and give them a few real cases and set them loose, but okay. Oh my gosh. Yes. They're. <laughs> There's there's some compelling. <laughs> wow, I'll have to check that out. All right, well, thank you so much. <laughs> thank Pam, you so much for, for having me. Thanks for the work you do. Mm-hmm.